Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. So it's, uh, it's Monday afternoon and it's midway through the trip of a lifetime. I find myself in Rwanda, this little landlocked country the size of Maryland in the Great Rift Valley where the African Great Lakes region and East Africa converge. And we've been doing ministry. We've been meeting children. We've been walking villages, preaching and teaching and praying. And now we stop off at what we are told is a coffee washing station for a tour. Rwanda is very known for its coffee. They are famous for their coffee, and they want at this washing station to teach us Americans how coffee is made, which is perfect because I consume a lot of coffee. (laughs) I mean, the, the phrase a lot of coffee is actually kind of misleading. It's an understatement. I drink so much coffee. In the Moore household, the first thing we do when we wake up is we hit the coffee pot. I don't remember the moments leading up to that. Like, I still, I'm like, you know, I'm the walking dead. Like, where's the coffee pot? And then the first thing I do when I get to the coffee pot is I pour a mug for my lovely wife because I'm a gentleman and the rest of the pot is mine. Like, she gets her mug, and then I take the, you know, if I could get it into my veins, I would. Like, I require a lot of coffee. I drink so much coffee. I brought with me a coffee pot to Rwanda, just in case. That is not fiction. That's a true story. I packed it in a suitcase. It was like, here you go. You know, like, you're going with me, because no one wants to see me detox from coffee on one of these trips. It would be bad, right? This coffee pot has been everywhere with me. I've taken it to the regions of Nicaragua. I've taken it to the Dominican Republic, Mayan villages, Mexico. I take this thing everywhere, because I am addicted to coffee, And it dawns on me on this trip when we're at this coffee washing station that I don't know anything about coffee. Like literally nothing about this coffee. Like we go to this coffee mecca where it's a farm where they grow coffee. It's a place all of it's grown and planted and harvested and washed and roasted and ground. And it occurs to me like there's, it's like I, you know, you could tell me anything right now and I'd be like, okay, that sounds right. Like I don't know anything about coffee. These guys are giving the tour, and they kept talking about planting a seed, the coffee seed. Each seed for the coffee plant is like the size of a berry. It's very small, and it requires this hole dug for it that's like the size of a bucket. We've actually got a picture of that. They're scooping out this bucket-sized hole, and they have topsoil and bottom soil, and they mix it, and when they put it back in, it's like the topsoil goes first, but mixed with fertilizer, and it's like all this stuff for a, for a seed that is tiny, right? And they gave me the seed, and I'm holding the seed because I'm like, we're going to plant the seed. And this is how stupid I am about coffee. Like, I thought this seed doesn't look like it would taste like coffee, right? This seed doesn't look like it would fill the cup in my kitchen, right? And, um, and, and well, it's true because it's not the berry. It's not what the grounds come out of. It's the seed for the plant. That's not what you harvest. It's not what you 
eat, but I didn't know that because I'm an idiot. So I'm standing, I'm sitting there looking at, like I'm about to plant this seed, and I had this thought go through my head, like, I wonder if it tastes like coffee. (laughs) And when no one, you see me looking at it, I'm like, I wonder, these pictures were sent to me later. The guys that were giving the tour were like, we thought you might like some pictures. I didn't think anyone knew that I did this, and then I saw the pictures, and was like, oh, This is what was happening. Like, I was looking at this thing going, I wonder if this tastes like coffee. I wonder if this tastes like coffee. And then when no one was looking, I, and I chewed it up, and you can see the expression on my face. (laughs) It did not taste like coffee. I didn't know anyone saw that moment. It was, I mean, I thought it was all by myself, like nobody knew. That's not where the coffee comes from. That's the seed that the plant comes out of, right? But I didn't know that. And so literally, I wanted to vomit. I was like, you know, they were like, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. They were like, you look sick. (laughs) And I said, your coffee tastes like dirt. (laughs) And that's when I found out I ate a seed. So when I say I learned something from that tour, it's a bit of an understatement. I learned a lot. From that tour, we learned about harvesting and planting and soaking and washing and drying and roasting and germination. Germination. So now that I'm an expert on botany, (laughs) I thought the natural next step would be to teach to you today from Matthew chapter 13. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to that section of Scripture. We've been studying. For the past several weeks, these stories that Jesus would tell, these illustrations, descriptions of the new kingdom that he is building right in the middle of this kingdom. And he would tell these stories as a way to describe what life is like inside of this kingdom. And we have a brief one we're going to look at here this morning. Matthew chapter 13, if you've got a device, you can get it out as well. Um, We put the references on the screens, but not the verses, just simply because we want to look in here together and like take these words seriously, right? Rather than putting the verse up there, we just thought, man, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. We've got them all throughout the room. If you don't own a Bible, you can put your name in that one. Congratulations. It is yours. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Two short verses that we're going to spend our entire time on this morning. Verse 31, Jesus tells them another parable, Matthew writes, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Lord Jesus, would you help us understand your word? God, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff vying for our attention that would seek to distract us today. Give us a supernatural ability for these next few minutes to simply focus on what your voice is saying. Keep those distractions at bay. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we had some amazing messages these past couple of weeks. Last Sunday, getting to hear from Dr. King um, uh, as he explored some of Jesus' words and being all in. I appreciate so much what you, what you taught on last week, uh, Dr. King. We're so appreciative. And, um, and then the week before that, uh, Megan shared, and, um, and she talked about bullying. You guys might remember that Sunday, what an amazing uh, uh, Sunday it was. It occurred to me 
last, um, goodness, I forget what day it was, but I was in an airport somewhere listening to these messages, and I thought to myself, we are so blessed to have such great communicators here and great people, and so we want to say thank you. Can you guys thank them? Many of you uh, know Pastor Christy and I just returned this week from a trip to Rwanda. It was an amazing experience, one that I'm sure I'll be unpacking things from for the next several weeks, months, maybe years to come. And while I knew it would be an amazing experience, the magnitude of it didn't really hit me until the night before. Now, before I tell you this, like what I need to tell you first is that sometimes I'll play these games with myself, like these little dares or challenges that nobody else knows about and are like really insignificant to everyone else, but it's like stuff that I just try to do to see if I can do it. I don't know why I do these things. Like sometimes I'll have a water drinking contest with myself, like just to see how much water I can drink in a day. Three gallons is the answer to that. We sometimes will go to a drive-through at Chick-fil-A, and, um, and this little game I play with myself is like trying to see how many times I can get the employee to say, my pleasure, before I leave, right? The record so far is nine, like the nine times in one visit. These are the little games that I play, just stuff to keep life interesting, right? It's the night before the trip to Rwanda, and we're having dinner as a family, like, because it's going to be the last time we do this for a minute. My mom comes over for dinner. It was an amazing time together, and they say, how much money are you bringing with you? And um, what I thought would be fun was trying to do the trip on no money. Like, I thought, like, let's see. Let's just see if I can do it, if I can make it from start to finish without spending a dime. And they both jumped all over me. They were like, what are you talking? This is a trip of a lifetime. Like, why would you, why would you be such a poor steward of it? Like, some people spend their entire lives wanting to do something like this. You've got to, you know, and it began to seep into my brain. Like, that's true. This is a big deal. This trip is going to be amazing. Like people, and I think I had missed it until that moment, how big of a deal this was. I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't know how revolutionary it would be in my own life. Now, I want you to imagine I get back from a trip like that, this huge, momentous occasion, right? This threshold experience in my life, and I see you, and you're like, how was it? And I'm like, yeah. It was like uh, it was like a plant in my yard. You're like, what? <laughs> a plant in your yard? Like, could there be a more underwhelming description? It'd be like, oh, it was sort of like you know how the pollen spores. You know, they're like there's pollen everywhere. It's sort of like pollen. You'd be like, that sounds awful. Like that doesn't sound like a trip that I would want to go on. And yet, that is exactly how Jesus describes the kingdom of God in this parable. I don't know if you catch this. Like, there was a part of me this week that almost didn't want to preach on this parable because, like, I'm kind of like, it seems a little boring. Like, and I don't know how we could spend 30 minutes unpacking it. I'm just being honest with you. I think I've gotten a little bit used to it because we've heard it before. We've heard the kingdom of God described as a mustard seed. We've heard about mustard seed faith before, right? And we miss what I was all in danger of missing is this was kind of a, a contrary way for Jesus to describe the kingdom. Jesus is trying to describe something huge and revolutionary and amazing. And the way he describes it is a mustard seed. Like that seems 
crazy. This kingdom that the people had been looking forward to for years and years and years and years. And just a little bit of Bible history, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, believed that they were the special called people of God. They were the nation of God. They were the kingdom of God. They had been called out from the world to be a separate nation ruled by God and allowing the world to see God through his kingship over them. But there's a problem, a tension in the narrative. All throughout the Old Testament, these foreign invaders would come in and exploit them. They would own them. They would move in and keep them captive. So there, there, there would sprout up these prophecies of a coming day when the Lord would not allow that anymore. He would raise up someone to drive out the oppressors. And this person that would be raised up would be known as Messiah, the promised one, the predicted one, the one who would drive out the foreigners and restore Israel to her rightful place as the kingdom of God. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and he begins announcing in all of these places that the kingdom of God has arrived. You may remember in Luke chapter 4, this special little passage, verses 16 through 21, when Jesus announces the start of his earthly ministry, it says, Luke tells us, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, so he goes to his hometown. This is a big deal. And on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. He unrolls it, and he finds the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is a messianic prophecy. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sits down. All eyes are on him. And he looks out and he goes, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He goes, it's on. Kingdom of God is here. I am that Messiah. And then page after page after page, he continues to tell the people that he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. His kingdom has arrived. And the people, by the way, they're, they're expecting a battle to happen, right? Because they understood this Messiah to be a political leader, the one who would drive out the oppressors, who would drive out the foreigners who were holding them captive who would drive out Rome and so they're expecting Jesus at any point to unleash a battle and so they're all the time asking him hey are you gonna do it now hey are you gonna do it now hey are you gonna do it now and Jesus would continue to not do it and they're like what is going on and instead he kept telling these stories these stories that we've been exploring in this this season of our church stories that Jesus would tell to describe what his new kingdom actually looks like. You guys remember we said that these stories, they're not didactic tales that tell us how to live. They're descriptions of this new order that he's instituting, this new kingdom, this new work that he's doing. And if you want to participate in what he's already doing, then this is how you live. But it's a byproduct. Jesus would, would roll into a town, you may remember, in the Gospels. He would perform a miracle. This was act one of his Jesus show, right? Act one, perform a miracle. Someone's getting healed. Someone's getting their vision back. Someone's getting fed. Somebody's getting resurrected. All eyes are on him. So now he uses that moment to announce act two, the kingdom of God has arrived. 
How do you know? Look what I just did. I just healed a dude. Like act two, kingdom of God has arrived. And people will go, what's this kingdom? That leads to act three. Let me describe it to you. Usually with a story. That's what these stories are, these parables. But the people, while they're trying to learn, they're continuing to wait for this war that he's going to unleash, this battle, this political realm where he's going to drive out Rome. And this is their expectation, which is why he goes in Matthew 13, oh, you need a story. Because that's not what I'm bringing. That's not what I'm doing here. Matthew 13, our passage today, verse 31, he tells them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed to which you go, wait, what? I thought the kingdom of heaven would be like a war. Like I thought the kingdom of heaven would be like a thunderstorm. Like I thought the kingdom of heaven would be like a wrestling match. He's like, no, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Like a mustard seed. A man takes it and plants it in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, it grows. And the largest of garden plants becomes a tree. So that the birds come and perch in its branches. And you're in that original audience. And you're like, what? So when are we driving out Rome? Jesus, you're, you're never going to turn this into a movement if you keep telling stories like that. That is a boring story. And it's as if he wants to go, you guys... You're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for something that's going to have pomp and circumstance and thunderous sounds. And the kingdom isn't even, it isn't even like that. Like it's something totally, totally different. And then here's what's kind of even more um, compelling. He tells this terrible little story in all the Gospels. He doesn't just repeat, he doesn't just say it in Matthew. He says it in the others as well. He's like, this is really important that you understand this, which makes me think it's really important that we understand this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, he tells him a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, something really tiny, this really tiny seed. Verse 32, he says, it's the smallest of all the seeds. Now pause, it isn't. <laughs> It may surprise you to know, it's not the smallest of all the seeds. And there are critics of the Bible who are like, you see, Jesus didn't even know agriculture, right? People will jump all over this. They're like, it's not the smallest of all the seeds. But in both the Jewish and Roman world, mustard seeds were proverbially known for their small size. Like this was a common uh, uh, turn of phrase to talk about a mustard seed. And since we're dealing with proverbial, proverbial usage, Jesus was grabbing a hold of this. He's not mistaken about like the smallest of all the seeds. He's talking about the smallest of all the seeds with the maximum amount of potential. And that is a well-known device in this world, right? It comes from the Greek word that is actually the one in this text called synopi. Let me hear you say synopi. Oh, you can do better than that. <laughs> now you're like, synopi. There you go, yes, the ah on the second syllable, synopi. There you go, all right. So basically, this word synopi has two um, possibilities for how we understand it. It can mean one of two things. Neither of these changes the meaning of the story, but it's interesting, and I thought you might want to know. Option number one is the brassica nigra, which means black mustard plant. It's basically this plant here that you see on the screen. It's got these yellow um, uh, petals 
um, and there are seeds within it. Mustard in Galilee, by the way, is everywhere, especially these Brassica nigras. They can grow to be about six feet tall. It engulfs the entire countryside. You get buried in it as you walk about, right? And then option number two it's a little bit different and also used when you're talking about mustard seeds. It was common to, it's called the Nicotiana Glauca, which you may recognize the Nicotiana from there. It's where we get nicotine from. It's basically a tobacco plant or a tobacco tree. It looks a bit like this. These things grow to be 15 to 17 feet tall. Enormous trees. And as you get closer, you'll find this, this yellow pod, right? And if you grab this pod and split it open, what you'll see inside of that pod are, are hundreds of these little tiny seeds, mustard seeds. Okay, I just want you to appreciate this for a minute. This thing's like 17 feet tall. And it's grown from something that, those aren't Shaquille O'Neal's hands, right? Those are normal hands. Those little tiny seeds, like, makes it, it's like, blows up my head. That's crazy. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is grabbing a hold of when he's talking to his followers. When he's describing the kingdom of God. He's talking about something that has the capacity to turn into something huge but starts out very small. So, the question becomes, why is he talking about massive capacity for growth? What's the context? And you, of course, know, we've talked about already, the kingdom of heaven, he says. The kingdom of heaven is like that mustard seed. So it's connected to the kingdom, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, which we've explored a little bit just today. They were expecting at some point that Messiah would come and kick out Rome, right? And that would be the kingdom of God. It's actually a little bit bigger of a concept than just that. All throughout the Bible, we're promised there will be a day when God restores order to this planet. We live in a day right now where there's a lot of disorder. And basically, that comes out of this biblical worldview, which we've talked about before. Your Bible is a big book, and it seems really complicated, but it's actually only three acts long. Act one, God creates. Somewhere back at the beginning, there's an uncreated creator who speaks the whole thing into existence. Plants and animals and stars and galaxies. And then the highlight of his creation are you and me that he designed to live in relationship with him. But we don't get to have that. Why? Because of what happens in act two. In act two, there's a train wreck. Genesis chapter 3, sin is invited into the picture, and God cannot be in the presence of sin, so he has to cut out on the date, and he leaves. But even there in Act 2, in Genesis 3 verse 15, he promises there will be a day when I send somebody who's going to fix the train wreck that you caused. And Act 3 is getting to that day, everything God did to get to you. The rest of the Bible just tells how we got to Jesus. Jesus is that Messiah, the one who fixes that train wreck. We're told in the Gospels on this side of Scripture, these four different accounts about a man named Jesus who performed miracles, who announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, and then who died on a cross to pay a debt we shouldn't or couldn't pay to write a check for our freedom. And then Sunday morning when he was raised back to life, it was proof that that check cleared and now we accept his sacrifice and live back in union with our creator again. 
And in that union, we begin being his agents for this new kingdom that he is building here. This new place that he is building here. Right in the middle of this broken, messed up planet where we still see all the signs of sin being rampant among us. Sin, not just that are caused against us, but just environmental stuff, right? We see a world gone crazy. We see floods and hurricanes and sickness. But we also see this agency, this this place where we live in peace and unity with God. And there will come a day when he drives out all that other stuff. But until then, he's planting a new kingdom right in the middle of the broken one. That's what we are. That's what we get to have. That's what we get to be a part of. It's this amazing, amazing thing. You guys um, familiar with the expression no man's land? Maybe some of you, I know there's some history buffs in the room. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I'm a little intimidated to even talk about this with history people in the room. But back during World War I, when these battles in the war would be fought, they would be fought over these um, extensive pieces of land where you'd have the Axis and the Allies set up on either sides of it, right, in their elaborate trench systems where they would shoot at each other across this field, and that field in between is known as no man's land. In order to win the battle, somebody had to cross it. And so it would often be filled with barbed wire and snares and holes and landmines hoping to blow up the people trying to cross it. And if you tried to cross it, you would get, sometimes you could get stuck and get shot at, right? This no man's land was neutral, but it was filled with all these pitfalls, places you could get stuck, things that could hurt you, but it was also filled with acts of heroism, these amazing things that you would see play out on this land. The land itself was neutral, but the two sides were warring. The Bible says there's a spiritual war going on. All heaven and hell are are warring with each other. And the place where it plays out is right here on planet Earth, this no man's land, this neutral space in between, where we see these awful acts of atrocity, but we also see these amazing acts of heroism. We see both. And God sent his son Jesus to plant something new on this no man's land called the kingdom of God. And there will come a day when he wipes out the offenses, when he drives out hell, But until then, we're in the middle of both, the two sides warring. But in this kingdom that he's building, we get to be a part of something beautiful and better and uh, and compelling. And what Jesus keeps talking about, what he keeps describing is this new kingdom of God where every act of compassion, every act of kindness, every act of gentleness matters. It is a neutral land, but every time you bring something like that from, the, from heaven here, you're planting a part of that future kingdom right here. And it matters. It counts. And you have no idea what kind of result it could have. It's a lot like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed, but it has a huge impact. See, when it comes to the parables, Jesus is usually answering a question. Usually, 
It's either explicit or implicit. Like either it's a stated question, like the one where a guy comes up to Jesus and he goes, hey, how do I, how do I, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus goes, well, you know the law and the prophets. What do you think? And he goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, you've done well. And he's like, yeah, but who's my neighbor? <laughs> and Jesus goes, oh, you need a story. And he tells him the good Samaritan, right? He tells him that story. He's like, everybody's your neighbor, even the people you hate, even Samaritans. Like, those are your neighbors too. And then other times, there's questions that are implied. They're not actually stated outright. And he tells the story to unpack those. And this is one of those. The people want to know, what does your kingdom look like? When are you going to bring it? When are you going to kick out Rome? Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Rome's kind of winning right now. They're kind of killing it. Are you going to put an end to this? And Jesus knows that's what they're wondering, and he goes, you've got the wrong kind of kingdom. You're looking for pomp and circumstance and battle and noise, and what I'm bringing is more like a mustard seed. It's something that you plant, something small, something quiet, something that's growing in the dark, but when it grows, it's big. And well, we're the fulfillment of that, right? And Jesus is having this conversation with 12 guys who followed him around for three years. And he never wrote anything. Jesus didn't. Never went on a podcast. Never dropped an album. Never went on YouTube. This is before CNN and cell phones and Twitter. Jesus never, there's no reason we should be talking about him here today. From a purely naturalistic point of view, he was a homeless rabbi who wandered around the desert telling 12 guys about heaven. That story should have evaporated in the desert. And think about it. He lived his life into these 12 guys who lived their lives into some other people. And then 2,000 years later, here you and I are today talking about him. Last Sunday, I'm in Rwanda, and they're talking about him. That mustard seed he planted 2,000 years ago has grown into something huge. He was right. And he invites us in this story for... He wants us to have a, a mustard seed mentality, is what I'd call it, that just because something seems small and insignificant doesn't mean that it isn't huge, and just because it seems meaningless doesn't mean it isn't revolutionary. Jesus, uh, he tells this story 2,000 years ago uh, to, to offer these followers of his like this insight uh, to be able to see that even though it looks like things are chaotic around you, even though it looks like everything's falling apart, that there's actually something growing under the surface, so don't lose heart. He's telling them this story because there was some crazy stuff going on out there in the world. There was war and sickness in Rome. There was a lot of madness out there, and thank God we don't live in a world like that anymore. <laughs> pandemic and disease and war and illness loss death hurt I think Jesus tells us a story to encourage us that just because we don't see his kingdom at work doesn't mean his kingdom isn't at work just because he seems silent doesn't mean he's absent he tells us the story to remind us to keep pushing, to keep planting, to keep composing, despite the silence. You guys remember a guy named uh, 
Let's say this right, Ludwig von Beethoven. Realized a minute ago there might be some history people in the room. Well, there might be some music people in the room too, so I don't want to mess that up. Beethoven, you may know, when he was in his mid-20s, began losing his hearing. By the time he was in his 40s, he was completely deaf. And he would release these great works that would be played in these orchestral halls all over Europe to thunderous applause at the end, of which he heard zero. He couldn't hear it. He couldn't hear them applauding his works. What's so compelling about Beethoven is that leaving there, he'd go back to wherever it was that he conducted these things, where he wrote it down, and he would continue to work despite the silence. And I'm like, I think that's what we're called to do too. To continue to plug away, to continue to do the right thing, to continue hanging in there, to keep composing even when we cannot hear a single note. Even when it feels like your kindness and your goodness is falling on deaf ears. Keep doing the right thing. Keep being kind. Keep giving despite feeling like you got nothing left to give to the single moms who are struggling, wondering every night, is this having any impact? The way I'm sacrificing, the way I'm living, the way I'm pouring into my kids, is this making a difference? Jesus would go, you have no idea the difference it's making. Something's growing in the dark there, and my kingdom is going to be huge. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. just want to pause there for a minute. Anybody ever tempted to grow weary in doing good? It can be real. Sometimes you're just like, I am so tired of doing good, right? I'm so tired of doing the right thing. People take it for granted. They take advantage of me. Like, I'm tired of being that guy. And Paul goes, let us not grow weary in doing good. Keep doing the right thing. Keep pushing, keep planting, keep composing. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. In this kingdom, he goes, don't you forget that you almost always overestimate the big things and underestimate the small acts of kindness, the small acts of generosity, the consistency. You will wonder, is this having any effect is this germinating into anything? My kindness, my parenting, my faithfulness. Jesus says in his kingdom, those small acts are actually quite big. They're sprouting into something huge. It's easy to lose heart from the chaos in the world. Don't. Just because he seems silent does not mean he is absent. Years ago, a man named Charles, who you guys got to meet last November, he moved back to Rwanda in the wake of genocide. He'd been living as a refugee, and he saw families that had been destroyed, the smell of death literally everywhere. One million people in three months had been hacked to death with machetes. And walking into this place that was so ravaged, he shared with Christy and me this past week. He took a Polaroid camera and he took pictures of 12 kids. He knew he had a trip coming up to the United States and he thought, well, maybe I can get these 12 kids sponsored by some, some Americans. 
and he met a guy named Alan, and, and he and his wife stayed at his house, and he talked with him about this ministry that he wanted to start, whereby kids in Rwanda who'd been affected by the genocide, who'd lost parents and siblings and grandparents and families and tribes, he wondered if he could get them sponsored so that they could get an education and have a brighter future. And he pulled out these 12 Polaroids. And this American told him, I don't think you're going to be able to pull this off. Alan humbly shared with us this week that he tried to talk him out of it. And today, we have a partnership with a place called Africa New Life, and 11,000 kids in Rwanda are being sponsored through us, through you. Last week, last Saturday, Christy and I got to travel to a village. You saw the video, a village called Namagabi. The poorest of the poor in Rwanda live there. The people of Rwanda primarily are poor. And even there, the poor people of Rwanda go, the poor people live in Namagabi, right? They're calling that, they're like, they're to be pitied. And so moving into that context, Africa New Life, through our partnership, kind of went, I, I bet we could start a new branch there. I bet we could start a new plant there, a new satellite there, right? I bet we could start something. We could do a school, and we could do a church, and we could get those kids sponsored. And last November, you guys, 90 kids got sponsored through you guys. A church got built there, right? And the whole community flocked out to this place to see it happen. You guys, something so small that started with 12 kids getting sponsored through Polaroid Pictures has turned into 11,000 churches and a village that now also has a church and a sponsorship office because of you, because of God's faithfulness, because of that mustard seed mentality. You have no idea what hangs in the balance when you choose to live that way. The day that we went to this, to this church plant, in Namagabi, this village that we sponsor, that we are partnered with. This is kind of our sister church in Rwanda, Seacoast. This church, we, we stopped at a place along the way, a little city, a little village called Huye. Let me hear you say Huye. Yeah. Some of you guys were really worried about me going to Rwanda because I had this tendency to wander off. And I do, it's totally true. We stopped in Huye, and we're walking these dirt roads, and, and I'm walking around with my camera, with my phone. I'm just wandering around. I think we got a video of it. Yeah, I saw a cow in the woods. I was like, oh, you know, it's like squirrel, only it was a cow. And I'm following it, and I'm like, I wonder if I could ride that cow. You know, and all of a sudden, we look over, and these kids, there's a group of kids that are following us around because they had never seen a white person before. I found that out later. And they were like, what in the world? And now there's one just walking around our village? Like, there's a little, see them back there? They started hanging out and kind of looking. They're like, what? They look like they were going to beat me up. You know, I was like, oh, boy. And I didn't know what to do because there's a language barrier. So I pulled out my phone, and I'm like, I wonder if they know what they look like. These kids had never seen their own picture before. This is how poor they are. They'd never seen, so I pull it out and it takes them a minute to realize what's going on. And they're like, what in the world? <laughs> Listen to that laugh. They just couldn't, and it takes them a minute. They're like, shut up, that's me? You know, there's one kid in a minute, you can see it going through his head. Watch it, there he is. He's like, what? A 
He's, he's like, wait. Uh. <laughs> They'd never seen a phone before. They had never seen what they looked like before. It was amazing. The expressions. He said, this is a mom. That I was like, this is you. This is you. She was blown away. It's so pure, but it's also shocking because those kids often grow up to more poverty. They sang us a song at the end. You see the water jug on his head. They were, they were on their way to get water. They don't have running water. And so they go to a well where they scoop up water into these jugs and carry it back. They were doing their chores for the day when they saw a white dude walking around their village. They're like... And most of them would never make it out of that village because of the poverty. But then uh, a couple days later, I met this young lady named Darla. And Darla's a 12th grader, getting ready to graduate. And she gave this speech in English in her school uniform to a crowd of people because she, too, had been sponsored. She'd been sponsored, and this one act of sponsorship literally was the difference between her never having seen... She was one of those kids, didn't know what she looked like, never seen a cell phone before. And now she's speaking in English to a group of people because she has received an education and she's going to get out of that, that, that poverty, right? And she's going to have some options ahead of her. Why? Because of a very small act. Because some American goes, I want to sponsor her. That's it. Small seed, huge impact. Her future is bright. You guys... This story, this parable, I started the week looking at it going, I don't know, that seems like such a small thing to teach on. A lot like a mustard seed. You meditate on it a little bit, and pretty soon I'm looking at a 15, 17-foot plant in front of me going, I don't know if 30 minutes is enough. In this kingdom that Jesus is building, you will be tempted to think that those small acts don't matter. And he tells us this story, two verses long, to remind you every act of compassion matters. Every moment of kindness matters. Every gentle response. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. Some of you are struggling today. You're struggling to believe You're struggling to remain hopeful, to remain aware that God is in control. And he may seem silent, but he is not absent. He is near, close to the brokenhearted. He's doing something. He's working. He's growing something, even when it looks like he isn't. Some of you guys, you just need to be encouraged. Think of the miracle that you're even here at all. We said a moment ago that uh, this story should have evaporated in the desert. Jesus never authored a book. He never gave an interview. He never went on television. His story, there's no reason that in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we should be sitting around talking about this right now. And yet you're here. You could be anywhere right now. 
you're here and you're listening to this. He caused the dominoes in your life to fall in such a way that you would be here right now. Maybe to encourage you. But your pain isn't lost on him. And that there is hope. That he's actively involved in your life. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Some of you, uh, you've lost your faith. And I'm glad you're here. I think sometimes in the church we think that you have to believe first before you come. And I go, I don't know why we believe that. You're here today. Maybe your faith was something your parents gave you a long time ago and you've kind of walked away from it. But boy, if this story means anything to you today, it means that that seed that was planted all those years ago could be growing right now into your realization that there is a God out there who's crazy about you. He is not fake. He is not absent. He's intimately involved in the details of your life. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.